Thank you for being here today. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of John. And if you remember last week, Pastor Omer spoke. He covered chapter 8 and preached on how Jesus claimed that he was the light of the world. And that we too are a part of that. To do good works for the sake of other people. Because Jesus' mission is our mission and his light is our light. Great sermon. You can go back and listen to that if you didn't hear it. <clears throat> Which brings us to our sermon here today in chapter 9, where we, where we will discuss what happens when the light of the world shines, where some are made to see, like a man born blind, while others who think they see turn away blinded, as it were, by the light. And then we'll hit on a topic that we don't normally hear in sermons, where we will discuss our biblical story, people who are disabled, and how non-disabled people may be blind. And some of you may think this is not relevant for you, but what I want us to see is how a person with a disability may have a unique perspective on the Bible and on faith and how that can inform and teach us things we don't already understand and know. Because society and many churches actually have a problem with disability, where we are uncomfortable around it, where we tend to ignore its prevalence in our scripture, and where we feel the only thing we can do is pray for healing. But what if Jesus is saying that disability is a way to encounter God or as a preventative remedy for sin. And the real problem, the real problem is some people struggle to understand that a person with a disability actually bears the image of God and doesn't need to be changed or fixed or cured. So hopefully this message will help us all begin to reconsider what we have been taught about disability, how disability is portrayed in Scripture, and to not erase it from our biblical narrative. So let's read the passage for today. Here it is in John 9. It says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. In the world of Jesus and his audience, the blind were among the most tragic and needy of people. Some were able to make a living by singing or making music or writing poetry. Others were kept alive by being slaves in copper and silver mines. However, the majority, because of their inability to move around well and make a living, generally lived in extreme poverty, begging for their existence. They had to endure being refused, rejected, and looked down upon. And because of their culture, 
They couldn't participate in the community or in the life of the temple. Imagine that. They were excluded and isolated. One sage said that death is better than begging. We have three stories in the gospel with Jesus healing someone who is blind. There's the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark 8, where Jesus spits in the man's eyes and puts his hands on him, but the man could still not see clearly. So Jesus once more puts his hands on the man's eyes, and then the man could see clearly. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus in Mark 10, who sees Jesus and shouts, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus healed him because of his faith. And we have our story today about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. The story takes place right after the Feast of Tabernacles. Picture this. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's near the temple with lots of people moving about, and he sees a blind man begging, which is what most blind people had to do to survive. And the disciples, they see this man too, and assume like most Palestinian Jews of their day, that sin and suffering are intimately uh, connected. That this man who was born blind either sinned in the womb or his parents sinned in some way. Seems crazy, right? But that's what they thought. According to our passage, Jesus, right away, he sets the disciples straight. And I imagine him saying something like this. This man is not blind because of someone's sin, but it does give us an opportunity to reveal God's light to this community. And so Jesus, get this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Yes, a big, muddy spitball. I don't know for certain what is up with Jesus using spit to heal people, but he does. He used spit with the blind man in Bethsaida and in the healing of a man who was deaf and could hardly talk in Decapolis. Some rabbis believe that the saliva of the firstborn of a father had healing properties. And the use of spit in the surrounding pagan culture was often associated with magical properties. Maybe it was an allusion to Genesis 2-7. Since God made human beings out of the dust of the ground, Jesus, in an act of creation, used a little dust to make eyes work that were otherwise lacking. I don't know. It's not clear. Either way, after putting mud on both eyes, Jesus told the man to go wash off in the pool of Siloam, which is an interesting wordplay in this story, since the word Siloam means scent, and Jesus was supremely the sent one. The pool of Siloam was also regarded as being sacred. In fact, during the celebration of the Festival of Tabernacles, and we discussed this two weeks ago, sacred water was drawn from that pool, the pool of Siloam. And here in this story, Jesus instructed the man born blind to wash in the same sacred pool, although it was Jesus who did the healing and the man was healed, and he came home seeing. It's such a beautiful story. Sermons on John 9 love to zoom in on this miracle and act as if nothing else in the chapter matters. But the passage itself doesn't read this way. Almost all of the chapter focuses on what happens after the blind man receives sight. 
if it were just about the physical cure, the story would end after verse 7 when he reemerges from the pool able to see. Yet the chapter continues for another 35 verses. Jesus doesn't even stick around to witness the results of the blind man's swim in the pool of Siloam. He doesn't come back until after the blind man's neighbors and the religious leaders had thoroughly interrogated this man who was born blind. And it frustrated them as they tried to prove that Jesus' miracle didn't happen to show that he wasn't someone special. So they aggressively questioned this man. Was he really the man who used to be blind? Or was he just an imposter? Or was he ever really blind? And then they questioned him about Jesus, hoping to show Jesus as the sham, as a sinner. But they did not get the answers to the questions that they had hoped for. So they kicked this man out. They expelled him from the community and from life in the temple. A key point of this passage, one that you should notice, is that this blind man who can now see eventually sees the true light. For he recognizes Jesus for who he is. He is the Messiah. Yet some of his neighbors and the religious leaders, they struggled to believe the miracle actually happened. Even with their proof standing right in front of them, looking at them. And many just couldn't see Jesus as the Son of Man, the Messiah, because he didn't fit their expectations of what they thought the Messiah would be like it. Far from it which made them spiritually blind. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a man who deliberately breaks social conventions, overrides symbols of clean and unclean, crosses barriers with which the rest of society had erected, challenges the purity codes, defies Torah by touching lepers and declaring them clean by his own authority, and breaches the boundaries set up by society. By healing people in these ways, Jesus says no to socially and religious, religiously mandated alienation and welcomes them back into community life. This is how most people read this passage, and then they stop there. But I think there is more here to notice. Specifically, I think this passage tells us a lot about the neighbors and the community and the religious leaders, and how they viewed people with disabilities so differently from Jesus, and how that should speak to us today. One of the most unusual passages in the Bible is in Mark 9. And I wonder if after looking at it, we might consider that there could be another way to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus basically says that if your hand or your leg, or your eye causes you to sin, then you should cut it off or pluck it out. And somehow, everyone is a biblical literalist until it comes to this verse. I think we usually take these verses to mean, wow, sin must be really bad. But what if Jesus is saying that being disabled is not bad, but a way to encounter God? What if Jesus is suggesting that non-disabled people actually, being non-disabled, actually enhances temptation somehow? So I'm not really trying to initiate a hashtag cut-it-off movement, but I am wanting us to think again and to ask and imagine other possibilities. Now, surely 
disabled people sin too. But when do we ever think that someone with a disability could be a good thing, a blessing? Well, we typically don't think that way because of our toxic cultural view and belief in something called ableism, which is the discrimination of and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. At its heart, ableism is rooted in the assumption that disabled people require fixing and defines people by their disability. Like racism and sexism, ableism classifies entire groups of people as less than and includes, and includes harmful stereotypes, misconceptions, and negative generalizations of people with disabilities. The assumption that a disability needs fixing is dehumanizing and suppresses the image of God and a person that has a disability. This is what it's like to be disabled in an ableist world. This passage in Mark about cutting your hand or your foot off isn't the only time that Jesus or the Bible talks about disability as a way to reveal God. There are several instances I can think of. Take, for instance, the story of Jacob in Genesis, where Jacob wrestles with the angel all night long, and then his hip is wrenched out of socket, and he is disabled. And I think a lot of times this is read as punishment. But that's not really what the story tells us, and that is not how Jacob interprets the incident either. He talks about God being gracious, and this is a transformative movement moment where he can now understand his brother as an image bearer and as someone to be in community with. So I think this limp in this cane that we see him with when he's leaning on his walking stick and worshiping and blessing each of Joseph's sons, that those aren't curses, those are blessings as part of the transformative blessing that Jesus has been given. I think about Jesus' inclusiveness in the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, where the, services, where the servants are commanded to go into the streets to bring the poor, the crippled, the blind to the banquet. And they arrive and are welcomed just as they are. I even think about Zacchaeus, short Zacchaeus, who some theologians think is a biblical example of someone with a disability who also became a follower of Jesus. And we can read about disability in our story today if we are willing to look and learn. When Jesus encountered a man born in, blind in Jerusalem, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The disciples don't get it. They interpret this man solely as his disability. They're so caught up in prescribing the cause of this disability that they don't even learn this man's name. Do they even know it? I don't think so. It is sad that he's not given a name. It is. As, as though he's unknown and forgotten and not important enough to have a name. This man should be given more humanity and dignity, right? Yes, he should. And so as a good practice, we're going to give this man a name in this sermon. We're going to stop calling him the blind man because the man is certainly more than his disability. 
So let's call him Giannis, which is Greek for John. And I think Giannis is a great name to use in this story since we're reading the book of John. And Giannis is also one of my favorite basketball players, though I struggle to pronounce his last name. Can you? Anybody? Now, it's easy to dismiss the disciples as villains here. But they surely think that they are being faithful to their common theology inherited from Leviticus 21. Which says that anyone with a supposed defect cannot enter the temple. Whether they are blind, disfigured, crippled, short, or has any eye defect. The disciples, based on these verses, they think they know who is in and who is out, like mean girls. And no disabled person can sit with them. Before you judge them, the disciples, you should know that a 2018 poll found that 67% of people feel uncomfortable talking to a disabled person. Think about that. That is a big number, right? Disabled people make up about 25% of the U.S. population, yet they still make the majority of our population uncomfortable simply by existing. Anybody who doesn't fit in a tidy box of cured or normal makes other people feel out of place. So it's no wonder the disciples don't know anything about Giannis other than his blindness. They don't talk to Giannis. They don't get involved in his life because they think people with disabilities are dirty, that somehow they're unclean, maybe even contagious. Yet Jesus is having none of it. Jesus inverts their idea of blindness by showing the disciples that disability becomes a place of encounter with God. Jesus interacts with Giannis directly, talking not just about him, but to him and with him. According to to Jesus, uh, Giannis' blindness didn't result from his or his parents' sin, but instead his blindness displays God to others as he was healed. Think about that. What a powerful, subversive statement. Giannis' disability helps reveal the light of the world to people. Disability is no longer a symbol of sin, but one of being open to revelation. Disability unveils God's work, his miracle to the community, if only people are willing and open to see it. Jesus claims that he has come to this world so that the blind may see and those who see will become blind. While this is directed at Jesus' audience, it offers a lesson for us today. If our primary perception of ourselves is as people who can see, hear, or walk over those who can't do those things, the sin of stereotyping and excluding remains prevalent. And the fact that a disabled person makes two-thirds of us uncomfortable exposes the need for our deeper healing. Amy Kenny is a disabled scholar and author of uh, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. And she writes this. We are erased from a society that never wants us around and continues to use extreme measures to cure us us instead of accepting us as we are. I've come to expect this from the medical industrial complex because the people caught up in it only know me as a medical case file number 162742 and not as a human being. 
But I refuse to accept this from the body of Christ, whose members are invited to value the diversity of God's creation instead of erasing it. They push cures down my throat without wondering how God is at work through my disability. These moments are always bewildering because they center the experience of the non-disabled person pitying my disability without knowing anything about me. I'm not waiting for a cure to live an abundant life, and if folks would take the time to get to know me as more than a diagnosis, they would know that. Perhaps the biggest surprise in our story today is that receiving sight doesn't magically improve everything or anything for Giannis. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It amplifies the way he is ostracized by people who think that they understand Scripture better than him. His neighbors seem to fancy themselves as detective on law and order Jerusalem, interrogating everyone to get to the truth of how and why and when he was first able to see. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. The neighbors are so suspicious of Giannis' miraculous story that they expel him, baptizing their actions in the spiritual language to make them seem holy. Giannis receives his sight on the Sabbath, which according to them breaks the rules working on the Sabbath, and that matters to them above all else. Make it make sense, the neighbors seem to whine, but they don't stop at curiosity or even confusion, they go straight for expulsion. These people are only concerned that Giannis was disabled because of some unconfessed sin. Today we typically think of illness and sometimes disability as biological with Western, manage, uh, with Western medicine, set up to find and cure disease directly. When we go to the doctor, it's usually to find a cure for whatever symptoms we're experiencing. The Greek word often used in scripture for healing is sozo, which means to make whole or to save. It's the same word used to talk about salvation. You need to understand that for Jesus, healing is not purely about a physical alteration, but about reestablishing right relationship between humanity and God and hopefully between individuals and community. Modern medicine still recognizes the difference between curing and healing. Curing is a physical process. It's individual, usually rapid, and concentrates on eliminating disease. Healing is a socio-cultural process. It focuses on restoring interpersonal, social, and spiritual dimensions. It's lengthy and ongoing because it's a process of becoming whole. Giannis received a physical cure in the beginning of John 9 when he emerged from the pool able to see. But his true healing does not incur until much later in the chapter when he declares, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. That's the moment he's restored through a conversation with Jesus and is now finally able to reach the place of worship he's been excluded from. 
Jesus is always tearing down the boundaries we set up. And here Jesus reveals the unnecessary barriers of kingdom exclusion, which is wrong. And we know this. We say it every week. Everyone, everyone is welcome at the table. Giannis can worship Jesus anywhere, even outside the temple, even on the Sabbath, even without the permission of the religious elite. That's the moment he realizes who Jesus truly is. Not some random magician or prophet, but the Messiah. That's when he is healed. Rachel Held Evans writes that there is a difference between curing and healing. And the church is called to the slow and difficult work of healing. We're called to enter into one another's pain, anoint the sick, and stick around no matter the outcome, even when it makes us uncomfortable. Instead of desperately trying to cure all disabilities, the church should do the slow and difficult work of healing their surrounding society by tearing down spaces, practices, and mindsets that are inaccessible to disabled people, even when those spaces are inside the church itself. The church should follow Jesus by healing instead of focusing on curing. In the disability community, disability is often described as a social construct. This means that people are not disabled because of bodily differences, but because of systemic barriers in a society built around non-disabled people rather than having disabled people in mind. These barriers include inaccessible buildings, hiring discrimination, paying disabled people a sub-minimum wage in 43 of our 50 states. And by the way, California is one of the better seven states that at least pays the minimum wage. But before we pound our chest with pride as Californians, you need to know that law did not go into effect until last year. Saying that disability is a social construct is not to suggest there are not medical issues connected to disabled people. Disability encompasses a broad constellation of bodies and minds and experiences. So the social construct cannot account for everyone. But it is a helpful framework for naming how the structures we have put in place often disable people more than their individual bodies do. And in this social model of disability, curing is often unnecessary because the social, structuring, the social structures disabling people are healed. And this should be important for all of us. When we are young and non-disabled, it's easy to buy into the myth that we are in control of our bodies, even though we know deep down that we are not. Subconsciously, we realize that everyone's physical ability is a temporary situation. And like it or not, either by age or accident, most people will experience some form of disability in their lives. I don't know if you are aware of it or not, but July, this month, is Disability Pride Month. It's been going on since 1990 with the passage of the, Ameri with the uh, Americans with Disability Act, known as the ADA, which is landmark legislation that led to more accessible buildings and buses, as well as curb cuts, ramps, and accessible bathrooms. That's a great thing. That's disability justice. 
Yet as a side comment, the religious community fought against this legislation in 1990 and were excused from the table and still are. The act exempted faith communities from parts of the ADA, an action that confirmed the feelings of many people with disabilities, that the religious community was not an ally. That's not a great thing for the group that claims to fight for the marginalized. Disability Pride Month is a time for all disabled people to unapologetically celebrate their bodies as they are, to recognize the unique experiences that they bring, and to acknowledge their contributions to our society. Think Stevie Wonder, Gabby Gifford, Franklin Roosevelt, Tammy Duckworth, Matt Lee Martin, to name just a few. And Disability Pride Month is an important opportunity to highlight how more needs to be done to make the world accessible and inclusive for all. So what could you do this month to raise your awareness, to see the world of disability differently? Well, you could watch CODA, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Or learn about disability justice by watching Crip Camp on Netflix. You could watch Pastor O'Meara's sermon called Access from our Luke series. You could also make sure your company is disability inclusive. And if you're in a hiring role, you could hire people with disabilities. They are artists, doctors, CEOs, and anything you can think of. Throughout Scripture, we encounter disabled people at the forefront of the work that God chooses to do with humanity. Isaac became blind. Jacob walks with a limp. Leah has weak eyes. Moses has a speech disorder. Elijah feels depressed and suicidal. Timothy has a stomach issues and frequent elements. And Paul has a thorn in the flesh. You see, the good shepherd brings abundant life with and without our bodies being able or cured. And whether we are abled or disabled, we are all beautiful and worthy because we are made in the image of God. Author Amy Kenny, Kenny also writes some words that I think are very insightful. She writes, we need to disentangle ourselves from any system that claims there is a hierarchy of bodies and minds. We already have a context for this in the rest of creation. We expect there to be variety when it comes to trees, flowers, and animals, just not humans. There are 60,000 types of trees, 3,000 varieties of tulips, and 400 kinds of sharks. No one claims fringe tulips are better or worse than cup-shaped tulips. They are both beautiful in their distinctiveness. We need to start thinking about bodies in the same way we think about tulips. Nobody is better or worse than another body because it is fringed or cupped. Variety isn't just the spice of life, it sustains life. Variation allows organisms to survive. Instead of eradicating difference, we should celebrate it. Let me close with just one more story that will lead us into our communion service. King David, at the height of his prestige, decided that he wanted to honor and bestow compassion on the remaining relatives of Israel's first king, Saul, and on King Saul's son, Jonathan. The only problem was that there was only one remaining descendant named Mephibosheth, who happened to be a paraplegic. 
which was a problem in that day. As we know, people thought they were dirty and sinful, but not for King David, who invites Mephibosheth to his table. Mephibosheth is not healed. He is simply welcomed just as he is to sit alongside the king and share a meal like one of the king's sons or daughters with honor and dignity and worth. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not a tiny table with an exclusive guest list accessible only to non-disabled elites, but an expansive one where disabled and non-disabled people feast together side by side where everyone is invited. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink this, all of you, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at the table. 